Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saadeh. You're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio 94.1 FM. Today we're talking with a leader with Inquinitos Unitos, Ariana Anderson, a resident of the Havenbrook Homes located in North Minneapolis. We'll also hear from Caroline Hood, President and CEO of RS Eden. Finally, Thomas Godfrey from Minneapolis Parks and Recreation Board will be on for a moment talking about the upcoming Juneteenth celebrations. We'll start with Ariana Anderson with IX. I spoke with Ariana after hearing about an IX campaign to take on the owners of Havenbrook Homes Front Yard Residential. Havenbrook Homes are owned by a New York City-based investment, uh, investment firm who until recently had their head offices in the U.S. Virgin Islands. According to a piece from the Star Tribune, the company owns thousands of properties across the country. 214 of those are located here in Minneapolis. I spoke with Havenbrook Homes resident uh, Ariane Anderson yesterday about her experiences in the, in the complex and the organizing campaign that she is part of. Here's that interview now. Great. So my name is Ariana Anderson, and I go by the pronouns she, her. Um, about a year ago, I got up with Renters United for Justice, um, and we just kind of been trying to get in touch with the owners of Havenbrook to get them to come out here to fix the basic things that will give us a quality of life, like the leaking roofs and the leaking the leaks in the from our bathrooms and um the electrical problems, just basic stuff. And basically what I do is I door knock on other people's door or do phone calls due to the pandemic to try to get other people that rent from other tenants that rent from Haven Brooks to kind of know that, you know, we're starting up this thing and just to talk to people and see what their experience is. And we've talked to quite a few people and their experiences are very similar to ours. So what we would do, what we're doing is just trying to get people in the community aware of what we're going through because we were unable to get in contact with Havenbrook Homes. So just a lot of advocating, self-advocating and awareness, bringing awareness to what's going on. I've been a tenant with Havenbrook for seven years. And the neglect was there before the pandemic. Um, once the pandemic started, the their evictions, they, they still sent out threatening notices if you didn't pay your rent on time, you know, stating that we would need proof from um, the CDC that the reason that we were unable to pay the rent on time would be would be due to the pandemic. But as far as like fixing the mold that's been under my seat, they did finally fix it. And that's only because I got the city involved. That's been under my seat for almost over a year. Oh, no response. So we've been asking to meet and resolve these problems and basically they're ghosts. We, we couldn't touch, we couldn't contact them, we couldn't call them, they weren't in the office, they weren't responding to emails. Um, we've had people in the community try to call them. They eventually turned off their phone. 
their, <clears throat> excuse me, their voicemails were was full, and eventually that wasn't even an option. Um, it was crazy. When we called to talk to the CEO, he they said that he didn't that he wasn't available or that he was no longer working there. Just lies and deceit. Um, so we are asking for the Congress people who have accepted com- campaign donations from the CEO Don. Mo- I think his name is Don Mullen uh, to return them because we just we feel as though they come into our community, they bought up all these homes, and they're not giving back to the community. You know, there there there's all these hidden fees. Um, there's just a lot going on. Uh, personally, uh, I people may say, well, why haven't you moved? Well, for me, um, I'm I'm on assistance, so a lot of people are not accepting Section 8 vouchers. And if I put in my notice to move, once I put in that notice, I have 60 days to find something. And if I don't find something in 60 days, well, then I'm a lose. Then I, I risk losing my voucher, and for me that's not an option because I, I'm a mom of five. Um, all of those things intensified once the pandemic hit, and they started in March. They started charging me all these weird fees, and um, my rent really didn't seem right. But I paid it, you know, because I had received those threatening letters. And um, recently, I was I got a hold of my worker from the county, and I was telling her, like, look, these these payments are not adding up. I'm I'm really concerned. There's this HAP fee. Is that you guys? And she said, No, that's not us. If, if we had any, if we charged you any different kind of money. Um, Either way, we would give you a written notice. We would let you know. And I and I told her how much I was paying for rent, and she was very shocked. She said, well, they've been getting double payments because they've been getting paid from us and you. So um, in the beginning of June, I had a credit, but the credit doesn't add up to what I feel as though they owe me. And honestly, like I was explaining to somebody else, I feel like it's, an abusive relationship, like now that we're we're really we're starting to you know our our campaign is starting to get a voice, and people are starting to listen to us now they're coming around. It's like when you're in an abusive relationship, and the best way I can explain it is like it's like being in an abusive relationship, and the abuser does something abusive to you, and then you get the strength to leave or fight back, and then they they're nice, you know until everything dies down, and then the abuse starts to happen again. And this is a pattern that Havenbrook displays. And um, I've I've had to call the city about the mold under my sink. Um, now, this was, I was, uh, I would say this was about eight months ago. Uh, they, when I, when we started our campaign, uh, they did come out and they took pictures. And they took pictures about of about fifteen things that needed to be fixed: leaks um, in the roof, mold, leaks in the shower, leaks in the kitchen from the upstairs bathroom, 
you know, just those kind of things, electrical issues, major things that affect our quality of life. And eight months went by, and they probably fixed two things. I tried calling them multiple times, like I said, and this is this is this is this is not just my story. This is multiple people who live in Havenbrook homes. All of our stories match up. It's um, like I, I was. I'll get to that, but um, I, I finally called the city because I was just fed up. And we did a, because of the pandemic, we did a, a virtual inspection. And I went through and I showed her the things that I showed Haven Brooks. And she failed. She failed them. Um, she couldn't determine if the mold under my sink was black mold, but she's seen the mold. Um, so she gave him 30 days to fix everything. And 30 days came and went. And when they came, when she came back out here to do an in-person um, inspection, they she seen that they didn't do anything, so they failed, and they got a fine. And then she came back out here again about a week ago, and they didn't do anything else, and they failed again. So this is this is something that's real, and it's something that we're dealing with. It affects my kids. It affects our quality of life. Um, it's just, and like I said, it's not a lot of places for me to move. I have to have a sound option. I don't want to move from one situation to the next. And a lot of these, you have your good landlords, but when people find your good landlords, those those residents, those tenants tend to stay there, you know. Um, so unless you're paying an arm and a leg, you know, people don't, Moving is not always an option. People make it seem like this. You could do. Why don't you just move? Well, for my for the size of my family, I can't just move and risk. You know, my risk, my having, uh, you know, um, my voucher just to move from one situation to the next. I need something that's safer. That where the where the landlord is more attentive um yeah i mean about two years ago my son got locked into the bathroom because all the doorknobs fall off and um <clears throat> i tried every tool because i had like anxiety because i felt like they're going to charge me so much if i had to call the fire department and i was just so worried and i tried every tool i had every screwdriver butter knife i Everything I couldn't get them out. I unscrewed the doorknob. Everything couldn't get them out. Mind you, the there is a window in the bathroom, but it's small. So at this point, I'm feeling I'm I started having anxiety attack because I felt like there was a fire. Anything, my my kids wouldn't stand a chance. You know that's their bathroom. I called the fire department and I begged and I pleaded. I said, please don't break the door down because I don't want to be charged. And they said, we'll we'll try everything, but you will not be charged. And the only reason why I recorded the um, situation was because I felt as though I would be charged, you know, because that's the kind of relationship I have with them. They, they make me feel like I'm an inconvenience or, you know, you should be, like, happy to give live in, this, in these conditions that I know they wouldn't live in. They wouldn't live here or, you know, they wouldn't neglect their own homes this way. Um, 
And I do understand coming into this uh, prior to the lease agreement is that this is very much our responsibility to keep the house clean, which is not a problem because I'm a clean person, to cut the grass and to pay all the utilities. That was fine. I agreed to that. But there are certain things that that regular that need to be regularly maintained that they don't do, you know, or when they do come and fix things, they have to fix them, which I digress brings me full circle to what I'm what I was saying about my son being stuck in the bathroom. Ever since I've been here, these doorknobs they fall off every six months, and that's not an exaggeration. That's that's me being generous. And my kids have all gotten locked in a bedroom upstairs because of the doorknobs falling off. Well, this time the fire department had to break the door the door down because they're they're coming over here. When we do, when they do come, they're half fixing things, and it, and sometimes you feel like you have no other option but to accept those conditions. You know, you kind of get you you start feeling defeated, and it really takes a toll on you. You know, you're paying all this money on utilities and rent, and um, it just it really does. It takes a toll on you. It makes you feel some kind of way, and eventually. You just kind of give up, and then you run into a company like Renners United for Justice that are advocating for the community, and they give you a voice, and you feel heard, and it's empowering. And once, once our campaign got some, you know, we got a voice, and people heard us. They're coming around, but it's still very minimum. And the proof is is that they failed three times. They failed an inspection three times, three times. What does it mean to you that, you know, these buildings are not owned by people from Minnesota, that people who could be your neighbors? Absolutely. Um, I'm very passionate about that. When Haven Brooks first came up here and, they, you know, you would see one or two Haven Brooks signs in, you know, the neighborhood, and then, they start buying up everything. At first, I didn't know how. I didn't know the giant that Havenbrook was. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that meant. I just seen, oh, finally, there's going to be housing, and that's great, right? But then when I found out, when I experienced, not found out, when I experienced what Havenbrook was really about. Um, I was devastated. I was heartbroken. I'm a Minnesota. I'm I'm a Minnesota native. I was born here. This is my home. This is my kids' home. And it, I'm, I'm, it makes me so upset that they come into our city, buy up all these homes, you know, neglect their residents, and don't give back to the community, and then just grow and go to the next state and do the same thing. It, it's discouraging, you know. Especially when I see like cities popping up in northeast Minneapolis and you know off of Hiawatha, there's people that need jobs. I mean, there's there's so much that they that they could do. You know, they could instead of being quick to throw a uh, tenant out during the middle of a pandemic, why don't you, if you cared about your tenants, suggest hey. Why don't you come do some maintenance for us? We know it's the middle of the pandemic. We have a whole lot of homes that need a lot of work. You know, send out a fire. Hey, you know, 
tenant. We're, we're, we're hiring with, within from our tenants, and you can get a discount on it. And there's nothing. They give nothing back to the community. They just come and take. What kind of work is the campaign doing? And our goal, I would say our, our objective is to have a higher quality of life. And I wouldn't say higher quality, but the standard. We're just asking for the basics. We're not asking for them to come in here and do a, you know, a cosmetic facelift. We're asking that when we, when my kid takes a shower, that the all the water doesn't come in the kitchen. I'm asking that my son that has active airway disease doesn't is not exposed to lead or black mold. I'm, I'm asking that that the ceiling doesn't fall on us because it's human outside. The the popcorn ceiling peeling off and chipping away and falling on us because it's human outside. And and, and I'm I'm asking that we're asking that that you're available, that we can reach out and talk to you. We're asking that you give back to the community that gives to you, you know, in some form in some form or fashion, give back. We're not asking for much. We're not asking for them to come in here and put brand new hardwood floors in. I mean, although that would be nice, you know, we're asking for the basic quality of living. And we're paying. We're paying. We should have that. That's 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 only fair. This is they're they're not doing us a favor. This is a this is a business. And they're not it's almost as if you go to the store and you buy a a, a box of, let's say, a, a brand-new TV. And the box is heavy, and the box is all pretty on the outside, and when you open the box up when you when you get home, there's only rocks in there. You know, it's just very misleading. Um, that's, that's what we do. Um, outside of Haven Brooks, we also advocate for other things that, like um, uh, renters control and just different things like, in the community, we do some advocating in the community, you know, to give back and, you know, stuff like that. So it, for me, it's, as a stay-at-home mom, um, it's been very empowering meeting with these group of individuals because um, they've given me, uh, they see my potential more than I see my potential because, Honestly, living at Haven Books and moving from apartment to apartment, um, I kind of, I've kind of been feeling defeated before I've got with them. So just giving each other the strength and the courage and the motivation to keep fighting and to have a voice and to know, like, you don't have to accept, you know, this basically the crumbs that Haven Books is giving you. You don't. Because sometimes you feel crazy, you know. Sometimes you feel like, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being unrealistic. But it's not unreal. For um, let me tell you a quick story. Uh, this past March, I had my daughter, and um, it was crazy because when my, I mean TMI, but when my water broke, the there was water everywhere, and I was like, whoa, I'm, I'm not. It's not this much water. So apparently the pipe that we asked them to fix several months ago when they came out here and took pictures had leaked all in the bathroom. It was disconnected. So all the water from the sink was going into onto the floor. 
and I had to make a decision, like, sop up this water so it won't damage the um, the vanity, the counters, the wood, or get to the hospital before I have this baby here. And it's just little things like that. Like, I shouldn't have to be dealing with this. You would be surprised how a company neglecting um, uh, little things can affect your life, especially when you're a mother of five, you know, I need the stove to work. I need there to be heat. I need there to be, you know, I need the uh, outlets to work so that I can, you know, charge my son's uh, Chromebook for school so he could do homeschool, distance learning. And I, I need my kids to be have a home that doesn't have mold because out of five of my kids, two of them have respiratory issues. I need for my child to be able to take a bath or shower in the sliding door and not fall on her. And when I call you to ask you to fix it, you come fix it. Because that I am I don't have those credentials to fix all of these things. Yes, I can go on YouTube and yes I have gone on YouTube and figured out how to uncog a sink because you guys won't come. But that's not my job and that's not what I signed up for. And then it's a slap in the face to find out that you guys are such a big company and that you don't give back and that I'm not the only person dealing with this, that most of your tenants are dealing with this. It's a slap in the face. It's a slap in the face. It's so heartbreaking to know that they came into my community, built up this huge empire that that's, you know, thriving and I'm over here with no heat. My son's locked in, in in the bathroom and then the the fire department had to break the frame of the door down to get him out. The the doorknobs are falling off every six months. The power is shutting off just because this and that. You got random people in my house because you don't want to pay for a professional to come fix things. You know, it's it's a slap in the face. I mean Wow, you guys are a huge empire, a huge, huge, huge company, and and you're neglecting your tenants. And it's not just me; it's my neighbors. It's, it's disgusting. What do you want the city to do about this? I mean, the city is ultimately responsible for holding, you know, business owners accountable to basic living conditions. What? What's the expectation of the city or elected officials in the city? That's a good question. Um, uh, over the course of this campaign, we've been ta- in uh, touch with uh, the city and the elected officials, and um, they were aware of of what was happening. And when they heard our stories, they were more aware. And I feel like this, this, the standard is to hold them accountable, find them, give them the fees, follow up with with the their progress. Don't just let this be a thirty day thing or a sixty day thing. Follow up with them every every annually every. Twice a year, even you know, do follow up. Ask the tenants personally what they're doing. Investigate, and then hold them accountable. I want Haven Brooks and and these other companies to be held accountable. 
how can people support the residents? By listening to our stories, uh, by not being afraid. For me, this is a lot of, I'm, okay, for me personally, at first I didn't want to speak up because I was afraid that I would lose my housing. Um, so I, I didn't want to do this. It was scary, you know, to go up against somebody so big. But there's power in numbers. So if your story, if you have a similar story, I want to encourage people to speak out, to speak up and speak out. That's the only how things are going to change. And I know it's scary. Um, far as, like, people that don't live in Havenbrook, uh, they can help by listening to our story, by putting it out there, like what you're doing. And people that are um, have accepted campaign donations, I ask that you return them. People that accepted the campaign donations from the CEO of Haven Books, I ask that you return them. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Um, do you have anything else that you want to add that you think people should know? First of all, I want to say thank you for this opportunity. Um, I really appreciate it. you taking the time to listen to my story. It's so much. It's been a lot. I know that People may think, um, well, she at least she's not, you know, homeless. At least she has a place to live. Why won't she move? If I'm even if I move, it's gonna continue to happen with the next resident. This is this is not a one person thing. This is most of Havenburg tenants are facing these issues. And it's it's a form of neglect and abuse, and I don't I don't think that any tenant should be forced to live under these circumstances. Thanks to Ariana for joining us on air. Just a reminder that you're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio ninety four point one FM. This is your host Serene Saade, and this is the Radical News Radio Hour. Up next, we have Caroline Hood, President and CEO of RS Eden. RS Eden, according to their website, quote, specializes in working through the complexities inherent in poverty, homelessness, substance abuse, and criminal justice involvement, unquote, with a community-centered perspective. Hood is on air with us today talking about, quote, rebuilding a life after reincarceration. Here's that interview now. Hi, Caroline. Welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm doing great. It's a little hot, but I'm good. It is a little hot out there. This is some record-breaking temperatures. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're talking about your work with um, – we're talking about RS Eden today, and you are the president and the CEO. Um, I would love for you to introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, uh, your work with the organization, and then what the organization is. Sure, yeah, thank you so much for having me again. My name is Caroline Hood, as you said. I'm the president and CEO of RS Eden. I use she, her, hers as my pronouns. Um, you know, RS Eden, I'm so proud to have been able to have the opportunity to work with RS Eden for the past 16 months in the role of president and CEO. We're an organization that's been around for 50 years. We're actually celebrating our 50th anniversary uh, this year. We were founded in 1971. Um, one of the stories about RS Eden that's really 
really exceptional is we really were founded in a grassroots kind of counterculture movement in many ways, starting with serving folks coming back from Vietnam, vets coming back from Vietnam who were really rejected coming back and who were often addicted to opiates and other drugs and needed support. And so Eden House was formed by sort of folks in recovery, helping those vets coming back and helping helping members of the community who weren't getting served anywhere else and who were left behind. And through that, um, we developed an Eden House merged with an organization called Reentry Services in 2000, so 21 years ago. And Reentry Services was a St. Paul-based organization that served individuals exiting incarceration, so exiting prison or jail. Um, and those two organizations merged in 20 in 2000, really under the understanding that they were serving the same population. You know, this intersection of criminal justice and substance use disorder. They were the same people. Uh, just entering our services through different doors, through a different crisis point in their lives, through a different need. And so in 2000 came RS Eden. And then, and then in serving individuals who were working toward recovery from substance use, who were re-entering their community after incarceration, it was clear that, oh my gosh, there's this gap for housing. These individuals, there's no place for them to live. Their criminal background history or their other their other barriers to getting permanent supportive housing so that they can get their lives back together. So then as an organization, we decided, okay, well, we need to meet that need. And so we need to develop housing for individuals like our clients who need to move from homelessness or recovery or reentry programs permanent housing. So we began to develop permanent housing and so we have um, housing sites throughout mostly Minneapolis um, as well as some in St. Paul. So that's that's kind of the those are the main areas of service we provide but again I think the story holds that we're really serving individuals who otherwise can't access service from somewhere else um, often who are looked down upon in the community and we really see we see them as such valuable, vibrant members of our community, and we're really trying to lift their voices and share their stories and recognize how important they are and and what critical members they are to all of us and not, you know, not a component of the community that should be left behind. Thank you so much for um, sharing that and for that intentionality. You know, we talked in the pre-interview about incarceration justice and what does it mean to have mm -hmm. justice for people who are living post-incarceration. Mm -hmm. And and you've touched on that a little bit, but I also know that this is it's a very multifaceted issue right. and approach. Can you talk a little bit more about where RS Eden fits in within this sort of scheme of justice for people living post-incarceration. I know that there was legislation that was recently signed by the yep. governor that um, you had said about in some interviews. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. This past session, there were three three pretty critical bills that the legislator passed and then the governor uh, recently signed. You know, I think our work with the post-incarceration justice is looking at how we help people exit incarceration and reconnect to their community. 
they are folks who are often living with multiple traumas, often with substance use disorders, mental health, um, mental illness rather, you know, and other things that are barriers to them being able to reenter the community. And sort of historic lens of post-incarceration work has been very employment focused, which we all know employment is a critical component to re-entering a community successfully. However, it's not the only component. We know that um, in order to keep a job, you also need to have stable mental health. You also need to have access to medication. You also need to have you know, social capital, positive supports around you, peers who are there to help support and guide you. So our work is really trying to look at whole person not just kind of components of what we hope is, oh, just get a job and therefore will will end this cycle of recidivism because we know that that's not the case. And what we we see in our programs is, to your, you know, your audience not be surprised, disproportionately, you know, serving people of color um, and disproportionately serving people who are living in poverty. And these cycles, people get stuck in. So if you're a person exiting incarceration, you have to pay a fine. You know, you have to pay money as part of your probation and parole. Some folks can't pay that. You may have to pay a fine to get your driver's license back. Some folks can't pay that. So those folks get stuck in this cycle, and we see that. And there, there were three pieces of legislation recently passed, one called the Healthy Start Act, which um, Minnesota is the first state passed legislation like this that would basically seeks to end prison births, which, um, you know, from my perspective, just seems like an obvious thing that everyone should do, given the trauma that that causes, not only on a person incarcerated, but also that newborn baby, and really in many ways penalizing, you know, criminalizing the behavior for the baby that they had nothing to do with. And so, we are really um, excited about that legislation. It makes perfect sense. And then the other pieces of legislation have been really around kind of some basic needs, as I just mentioned, the getting IDs, getting access to medication, getting a 30-day supply of medication as opposed to walking out with none or three days when you you can play out that scenario if you walk out with just three days of, let's say, a mood stabilizer to help you with your depression. Well and you don't have a doctor and you don't have an ID, you're not gonna be able to maintain that supply of medications and you're likely gonna experience some decompensation in an already extremely anxiety-provoking time when you have to work very quickly to get your life back in order. And so some of these little things are really, they're really big. They're really looking at you know not penalizing and criminalizing poverty, helping people get back on their track, and helping decrease that tie between incarceration and homelessness and how do some of these kind of small mechanisms or small levers actually actually decrease that pipeline so that we have an overall, you know, less at least less rapidly increasing homeless population. Well, you mentioned um you've I saw it on your website, and you've all talked about this, and I'd love to go more in depth, um, that community and providing housing, but also providing kind of a community-centered, trauma-informed mm -hmm. perspective. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about 
kind of the internal dynamics of RS Eden when we talk about community-centered trauma-informed? Because as I'm sure we both know, those terms are thrown around so right. often. Sure. And I think that we sometimes see them losing meaning. So I'd love to know what, what they mean yeah. in the RS Eden experience. Yeah, that's a great question. You're right. They've kind of become buzzwords like culturally responsive or some other things that, that people forget DEI. You know, what does that mean? So um, the community-centered nature, nature is really, um, it's really a hallmark of RS Eden. So part of it stems from what's um, a therapeutic community model. So for those folks who know uh, substance use residential treatment, there's this therapeutic community model, a TC model. And that model is, again, looking at how not only is sort of an individual coming in and, and getting help, that that individual is actually being healed and supported by that community. And in turn, they become part of that community and they're a healing mechanism for other individuals. You know? And that's, that's people who live together holding one another accountable. That's having um, alumni that they call family. It's having jobs in the house and cooking and taking care of, taking care of not only the physical space, but one another. That piece of community, I mean, I think it cannot be discounted. You can have the best therapist in the world and the best clinician meeting with you every week, and you can have the best cognitive behavioral approaches to treatment. But without that community connection, it's not as effective. And I think we've all sort of seen that over the past year as, as services have had to change to be less community-infused. That, that's just the secret sauce that's so critical. So all of our, so that's kind of where it started with this therapeutic community model, but across the RS Eden communities, these different residential places where people live for either you know, permanent housing, potentially many, many years, to transitional housing for 30, as little as 30 days, it's a community. People are there. They're part of the community. There's staff there too, but the community members are responsible for being you know, active participants positive influences in that community for however long they're there. And I think that that's really critical and it ties it ties directly to the trauma informed piece, which is again the re relationships are so vital. And if you don't have positive healthy relationships and you're not in addressing whether it's sort of acute, you know, people think of acute kind of capital T trauma like a rape. Um, there's the other sort of lowercase t trauma um, that is that is uh, systemic racism, that is growing up in poverty. So those we're looking at from the lens of not only acute traumas, but also these ongoing environmental traumas that are part of the community that people have been in, and how can we help to shape and shift the communities in a positive way and help these individuals become part of a positive community themselves. Thank you so much for um, talking about that. And, and as you said, it is because these terms are getting kind of, their definitions are sort of being softened to the point where they don't really have meaning too mm -hmm. often. And I think talking about what they actually look like is an important way to reclaim, um, yeah. reclaim mm -hmm. that work. Mm -hmm. Well, in just the, you know, couple of minutes we have left, is there anything else or any update from RS Eden? You mentioned it's the 50th anniversary this year. 
Yeah. Are there any updates or any other information you'd like to share? Gosh, thanks. Yeah, we've got a lot going on. It's been a busy year. Um, we are celebrating our 50th anniversary. We'll, you know, we're planning a nice event as the fall, you know, seems to be people kind of coming out of their shelves, shelves. So we're excited about that. The other really biggest thing that we have is we are in the middle of construction and um, rather, I should say, the tail end of construction on 80 units of permanent housing in the Longfellow neighborhood. So right off of Hiawatha and 46th in, in Longfellow in Minneapolis. Um, these eight units, so we're starting that wait list pool and lease up process and ideally we're leasing up and you know people are moving in at the end of the year, November, December. Um, and one of the things we're really, really proud of with this project is it is specifically aimed at the the cliff that a lot of people who are instably housed get stuck in. So either you're a person who has a Section 8 voucher and all of a sudden you get promoted at your job and isn't that an exciting thing? And yet, oh wait, if I start making too much money, I will lose my Section 8 voucher. We don't want that. We don't want people to get stuck. So this housing is gonna be affordable for people to move from a subsidy toward, toward you know, better future, toward gaining equity, toward decreasing that wealth gap, right? Toward giving folks another opportunity. Um, similarly to individuals who are exiting residential treatment or our reentry programs or others that fall into this gap of not necessarily being considered chronically homeless because they've had an address for a period of time, yet yet they are homeless. So again, this is um, it's called Amber Apartments. It'll be coming online at the end of the year. And um, we're really excited about this gap, that it's this need that it's going to meet, and we hope to do more of that. So I would say that's the kind of the biggest other exciting thing we've got going on this year. It's really interesting that you bring up bring that up because um, the other the other thing that we're talking about on today's show the, the the segment that everybody just heard was from a resident at Havenbrook Homes who was just talking about like what does it mean to live where our needs are not being met to be scared yeah. to go somewhere else to not you know, to be afraid to be back on the streets and so you stay in some place that's substandard. Yeah. And so it's interesting that you bring that up because Ariana um, earlier in today's show definitely spoke about that. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the homelessness population is growing in the Twin Cities. We all see it. We see it with the encampments and we see it, again, disproportionately impacting Indigenous and African-American and Latinx communities. And we we there is you know there's a shelter system that meets the needs of the chronically homeless and then there is sort of a pathway again for chronically homeless individuals to make their way toward permanent supportive housing but if you're somebody who's living on the margins or you're couch hopping or you're on section 8 and and want to move up want to get a better job you get stuck and there's a lot of folks who are stuck and are definitely you know, instably housed and kids are growing up in, in environments where, you know, none of us would, would be happy with that. And yet, yet there's not a lot, there's not places for them to go. So 80, 80 units is definitely not going to solve the whole problem, but it's a start and we're excited about that start and hopefully kind of an ongoing movement. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Where can people find more information on RS Eden before I let you go? 
Yeah, you can definitely come to our website. It's rseden.org. That's R-S-E-D-E-N.org. Um, and you can learn more about our programs, more about Amber Apartments and the waitlist pool. Um, you can get involved. We are looking, you know, for anybody who really wants to commit to service and um, work with us or volunteer. And we'd be more than happy to have a conversation and get to know more of our community members. Well, thank you again so much for speaking with us today. I really appreciate the intentionality and to share the work that's happening. And we will definitely continue following along with the development of the new property um, that's definitely in the wheelhouse of our, of our program. Okay, great. Thank you. This has been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Thanks to Caroline for joining us on air. Just a reminder that you're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul. Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. This is your host, Serene Saade, and you're listening to the Radical News Radio Hour. Up next, we have Thomas Godfrey, the Community Outreach Manager for Events with Minneapolis Parks and Recreation Board. Godfrey is doing a brief invitation to some of the upcoming Juneteenth events being hosted by the Parks and Rec Board. Here's Godfrey now. This is Tom Godfrey, Events Manager uh, with the Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board. So this year, um, with the uncertainty of, uh, you know, COVID situations and the restrictions on events that the state had, you know, until about the early May, we, uh, we had been planning for trying to do some Juneteenth activities in a variety of different ways, not knowing what the protocol on events would be come June. Um, so we moved forward uh, with somewhat of a kind of newer format um, we're going to do a, a series of activities uh, from June 13th through June 19th. And um, I guess you could say the big event was tailored back a little bit on June 19th, just because we were uncertain of uh, come June what the protocol on events would be and the COVID situation would be. So we decided to tailor that back a little bit on June 19th so it's not a huge event with a bunch of lines and things like that at vendor tables, things like that. So um, June 13th through the 19th, we'll be doing a series of activities starting uh, with a story stroll, Juneteenth story strolls at MLK Park, North Commons Park, and Peter Worth Beach area. And then June 15th, we'll be doing a drive-in movie, the movie 42. Uh, June 17th, we have a community panel discussion from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, title is Bridging the Gap, and that'll be virtual. So we kind of mixed in a few virtual things this year, again, not knowing what the COVID situation and protocol and events would be. June 18th, we're doing a family evening at Shingle Creek, uh, Creekview Park, uh, some family activities in the park that evening. And then we'll be doing a movie that evening as well, an outdoor movie, uh, The Great Debaters, and that's at Creekview Park. And again, as I mentioned, June 19th, we will still be doing uh, music in the park day, basically what it is from 1 to 3 p.m. at Bethune Park. Uh, and again, that's going to be music in the park with a few different uh, groups performing music. And uh, Javante Patton highlighting that with the Royal Family Music Group. And then uh, we'll also be having a virtual music performance from some of the Dolphins. We're excited about that. That'll be virtual. And we'll be sending out a link where people can uh, watch and view that virtually. And that kind of is a rundown of the, the week of activities. Thanks to Thomas Godfrey for joining us on air. We have several announcements before we go today. I am hosting almost three dozen community journalism trainings this summer. You can learn more at my website, journalismofcolor.com. The trainings are pay what you can, and the cheapest tickets are $1. Trainings will be held virtually.
I'll also be hosting several trainings this summer with the uptake, as well as with the uptake in partnership with St. Paul Neighborhood Network. You can learn more about the uptake only trainings at our Facebook pages. Those trainings are free, but donations are always appreciated. You can learn more and register for the eight part series of trainings with the uptake in SPNN at spnn.org under their events tab. Register for one, two, or more. These trainings are free and will likely be held in person with more details coming soon on that. One last quick note. This show was recently picked up by KRSM in Minneapolis. We'll have new as well as an original content airing Tuesdays at 1 p.m. on KRSM in Minneapolis, still under the Radical News Radio Hour brand. We're very excited for this opportunity, and I'll be podcasting each original episode made for KRSM on our current podcast and social media sites. Well, that's it for now. Just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at CMiriam, and you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is journalismofcolor.com, and that's where you can also find a transcript of this episode. You can reach our show at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. For now, thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Radical News Radio Hour. Just a reminder that you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Thank you for listening.